Who's with us? This morning we're starting a new series on the life of Moses, aptly titled Moses. We're going to be looking at six different moments in the life of Moses over the next six weeks um, to see what God was doing uh, through his life. The story of Moses is a story of a guy who was born into slavery, but eventually God used him to lead a nation. The story of Moses is an engaging story on par with the greatest book that you'll ever read or the best movie that you'll ever watch. All these huge moments of drama, but mostly it's a story of a guy who was born into nothing that God took and used to do incredible things for his namesake and for his glory. And this morning we're going to specifically um, be looking a little deeper into uh, one of the first moments where God and Moses had an interaction to see what the Lord was calling Moses to do. Before we get into that, I want to give you a little background um, so we know uh, what's going on and where we are in the story, a little bit uh, history of Israel and the life of Moses as well. And so I want to take us back to Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, you have a guy whose name is Abraham. And God made a promise to Abraham early on. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And so as Abraham is is looking forward to the promise of God, sure enough, the Lord begins to use the descendants of Abraham. And they begin to multiply and multiply and multiply. And we have the people of Israel. And at kind of a big moment in the life of the people of Israel... What we see happen is that there's a huge famine in the land. And God's people are basically starving. Yet there is one place that they eventually move and wander into called Egypt where the famine doesn't exist. And so God's people kind of move into the land of Egypt. And then there's a new king in Egypt. And and this king in Egypt looks at the people of Israel And he says, man, there's a lot of them. Like, this could be problematic. They could take over and things would go really badly. And so what the king does is he takes all the Israelites and he forces them into slavery. And so they became slaves to the king of Israel. And eventually he declares a decree as they continue to grow in slavery that all of the male children who were born to the Hebrews would be put to death upon birth so that he could stop this mass growth the people of God who were there in Egypt. Out of that moment, a little child was born by the name of Moses. And Moses was taken and was, was in hiding for three months, the first three months of his life, as his parents didn't want him to be um, put to death. Eventually, it became too difficult to hide Moses. And so what his mother does is she makes a basket. She puts Moses in this basket and puts it in the river just so that he can float down the river. And Moses' sister is sitting there watching Moses. And what happens is, is that the king's daughter, the Pharaoh's daughter, comes to the river to take a bath. And she looks and she sees this baby in this basket. And so she's wondering, whose child is this? She notices that it's an Israelite. And she says, is there anyone who can come and care for this child? And Moses' sister standing right there. And so she looks at this situation. She's like, yeah, I know somebody. And so she goes and she grabs her mother, Moses' mother, and comes and brings her mother. And Moses' mother is able to care for Moses, 
bring Moses up until he's of the age where Pharaoh's daughter adopts him. And so Moses goes from a child of slavery to a child of royalty. And as Moses grows up in this family, he gets older and older. A child of Israel and yet a child of Egypt. One day he's out walking around and he sees an Egyptian beating up on an Israelite. Because his heart is with his people, Moses looks at the situation, looks around and sees that nobody's looking, and he goes to this Egyptian and he kills him, buries him in the sand. Immediately, he becomes fearful, because the next day he's talking to some Israelites and they say, or are you going to do to us what you did to that Egyptian? And so Moses realized that word of this is going to get back to the Pharaoh, and so he flees and he goes into hiding into a land called Midian. And in Midian, he meets a girl gets married, has a kid, much like our lives. And so we see this interesting story so far of the life of Moses until this point. But here we discover that God is not done with Moses yet, that he begins to do something big in his life. We just watched a clip uh, from the Patriot. And you saw a moment where there was this call of people who were involved in their ordinary lives and doing the things that they always tend to do day in and day out. But they were called to something that was bigger than them and something that was even greater. And many of them realizing the call, knowing that this is a pivotal moment, not only in their life, but in the life of their nation, stood up and were obedient to the call. And I think for us today, it's vital that we look at our lives and realize that there are pivotal moments in our lives where God comes to us and calls us to something better than ourselves, something greater than ourselves. He takes us where we are and wants to use us for something even greater. And our response to that determines who we become and determines what happens in the history. So what is this calling for? How do we respond? We're going to look in Exodus chapter 3, if you guys have your Bibles, and go ahead and open up. Uh, we're going to look in Exodus chapter 3 to see how Moses responds to the call of God on his life. And my hope and prayer is that we look at the life of Moses and that we can see ourselves and find ourselves in the life of Moses and realize that God is calling us as well and that we should be asking the question, how do we respond? So let's look, Exodus chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not come near. Take the sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land to a good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. 
And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I will be with you. This shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. The first thing that we need to see from the life of Moses, the calling of God this morning, is that God's calling is about others. Moses finds himself in a crazy situation, right? It'd be kind of like if you were in your yard cutting your grass one day, and all of a sudden the bush that's right over there caught on fire, and there's this huge ball of fire. That's never happened to me before. The closest thing was one time our truck, Charlotte, that we used to haul all of our stuff back and forth around with. I was putting a block under her front tire, and all of a sudden she decided to, like, have a huge ball of fire come out that was about three inches from my head. I don't know if the Lord was trying to tell me something, but I do think that Charlotte was trying to kill me uh, in that moment. Thankfully, she didn't succeed, and uh, we have made up, and things are good. But uh, God's, this situation with the Lord speaking out of a burning bush is crazier here. Can you imagine if this happened to you? And God is desiring to speak to Moses to give him a great call. We know from Scripture that the presence of God is often shown through fire. God makes himself clear in the fire and through the words that he speaks. I love verse 7, what he says. The Lord said, I've seen the affliction of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. The God who created the universe, who sustains it, who holds it all inside of his hand, who is so much bigger and greater than we could possibly imagine, looks down at his people. He sees their affliction. He hears their cries for him. And he knows the sufferings that they go through. Isn't it such an incredible hope and promise to us that though God is so big, we're never out of his mind. That he looks at us and he sees us and he has compassion for us. But Moses, it doesn't just stop there for him. Because it says that not only does God see, hear, and know, but that God provides a solution. And in verse 8, God decides... He says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good land and a broad land. God doesn't just stop at having compassion on his people, but he provides a solution, a purpose, a plan for everything that we go through. And sometimes we walk through difficult situations and we don't know what God is doing. We say, where is the Lord in this? This is a question that I've asked for myself over the past month many times. Where is God in this? What is he doing right now? The truth is, God may not always reach out and pull us out of suffering immediately because that suffering, those afflictions have a purpose that God is using to prepare us for something that's greater. But the great promise that we have is that not only does God see us, have compassion on us as we suffer, But God also has a solution, a plan, and a purpose for that suffering. So he decides to send Moses in verse 10. He says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, 
the children of Israel out of Egypt. God could have done this himself, but he chose to use one of his children so that he could grow in, so that he could have the opportunity to obey God, grow in faith, and be used for his glory. God can do anything that he wants. There's no reason, aside from the fact that he loves us, that he chooses to use us, and that he chose to use Moses in this situation. Moses is unsure of himself. In verse 11, he says, But who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? It's a sensible question. I think if God appeared to us in a burning bush and told us that we were going to be the people to rescue a nation from an even stronger nation, that we would probably be like, you really think I'm the guy to do that? Like, who am I to do something like this? God realizing this is sensible, looks to Moses, gives him grace and says, I will be with you. Promises his presence to him in the midst of suffering. It's one of the greatest promises that we have in scripture. No matter what we're walking through, no matter how difficult things will be, that we have the presence of God to help us endure. That God sees our affliction, he hears our cries, he knows our suffering, and he has a purpose. But he's also promised his presence with us as we are there. Listen, life is difficult, even for God's people. Anyone who tells you that as a believer, as a child of God, that you're not going to suffer is just trying to get money out of you. We walk through hard times as God's people, but our suffering is not in vain. It's purposeful, and God has promised us his presence through it all. I was a a youth pastor before uh, I came on with the Church of Cane Bay, just like Charlie and David. And uh, one of the biggest moments of the year in student ministry is summer, and specifically summer camp. And so my first year, I was trying to decide what uh, I wanted our students to do camp-wise. And I knew what camp I wanted to go to, but they offered two different options. And one was the traditional camp option where... Basically, you have a wreck time every day where you shoot water guns at people and throw water balloons and all kinds of crazy stuff that teenagers love. And the second option is a mission option where you go and you take all your wreck time and all your free time and you just serve someone else. I signed up our kids for the mission option. And so we get to camp and uh, everybody's geared up and energetic and exciting. And so we're in, this, uh, in, the, in our first session this morning And you see, like, all the kids are, like, amped and just pumped to have this huge water gun war. And they're really excited for what's going to happen. And then, like, I look at my kids as they're all, like, leaving to go and shoot water guns at the people that they love the most. And they're kind of just like, all right, what are we going to do? And so we go out to this ranch for foster kids, and we painted a fence that was, like, literally a mile long. Um, that's not like an exciting thing to do, right? Like our kids were literally, we got back from camp that year and they were like, can we please not do that again? Like we could have had so much fun, but instead you took up all of our free time and now we have paint all over ourselves and it's ridiculous. Like what's the purpose? So they asked me if next year we could go and do regular camp. And so I said, okay, next year we'll do that. It's what you guys want to do. But I spent that next year trying to pour into them the heart of God that God wants us to think more about others than he does ourselves. And so we got to camp that next year, and and our kids went, and they they had the water gun wars, and they had all their free time. We got to the end of the week, 
and they're just like, something's missing. We, you know what? Last year we were wrong. Next year, can we come back and serve others instead of thinking about ourselves? And uh, it was just awesome. Over the next several years, we went back to camp and spent all of our free time and our rec time serving other people. And it was really our students' most favorite part of camp every year, having the opportunity to be invested in other people's lives and make a difference. And it's the same thing for us today. God is calling us not to spend a life focused on ourselves, but to have a heart and a mind for the people that he's placed us with in our lives. It's the reason that he sent Moses. He saw his people suffering. And he desired to rescue them. And he wanted to use Moses to do the same thing. And God's called us to the same thing. He's placed us where we work for a reason, where we live for a reason. And that reason is that we are there to make disciples of the people that God has placed us with. We're called to that. We're sent to that very mission. And the question for us is whether we're going to be obedient to the Lord to take the opportunity and use this calling for the good of others, or we're going to focus on ourselves and say, I want to do what's best um, for me. Some of you guys are here this morning, and you're hearing about this God who rescues. And for you, you might not have a relationship with the Lord. And I want to tell you that God's call for you this morning is a call for you to come and know him for the first time. And so as we continue to walk through Scripture, I want you to see and know the heart of God for you. That God sees your affliction, he hears your cries, he knows your sufferings, and he wants to rescue you as well. So how do we make God's calling about others? Two things. Number one, invest. You have the relationships that you have in your life for a reason. They're not an accident, it's purposeful. And God is calling you to those relationships. He's placed you there for that reason. You are sent to make disciples among the people who God has placed you with. Make his call about others by investing in those people and allowing them the opportunity to see the love of God. Number two, seek. Seek out new relationships. You may not know all your neighbors in your neighborhood. Do something to where you can bring people together, have new relationships. Think about your job, the people who surround you every day. Who is somebody else that you can reach out to have a new relationship for the purpose of showing them the love of Jesus through you. God has called you to your workplace, to your neighborhood, to your dorm, whatever it is, for a reason. So that the people around you can experience the love of a God that wants to rescue them. God's calling is about others. Secondly, God's calling is about him. We're going to continue on uh, starting in verse 13. It says, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed 
you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. A land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. God asked, Moses asked God a, a funny question in verse 13. He says, if I go to the elders of Israel and they say, I say the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say? It's kind of an odd question to ask considering the fact that the Israelites know who Moses is. They know that he's of them and from them and know that he knows that he serves the same God that they serve. And so for Moses to come to them and, and for them to say, well, what's his name? It's kind of a weird thing. God's not dodging or avoiding the question when he answers the way that he answers. And the reason is because their, their question isn't, what's his name? But their question is, what does his name have to do with my life, with my sufferings, with the things that I'm struggling through right now? And so when God answers in verse 14 and says, I am who I am, it's purposeful. God is saying, I am who I am. My name stands for who I am. My character speaks for itself. My works speak for themselves. Everything that I am I am. And this is the name Yahweh that God has declared to be the name that shall be known for him forever throughout all generations. And Yahweh is actually a to be form. And so it's literally Yahweh means I am. And the name of God carries with it every bit of the character of God, every bit of the work of God throughout history. Ultimately, what the Lord is saying, he's saying, I am all that I do. God is all that he does. It's who he is. For the Hebrews, the name Yahweh was sacred because it carried so much weight. It wasn't just a name. It spoke everything there is to know about the Lord. And so to speak the name of Yahweh as an Israelite, didn't happen. They didn't speak the name Yahweh because it carried so much weight to it. When the scribes were copying scripture and they got to the point where they had to copy the name Yahweh, they didn't even write the whole name. They took out the vowels and just left in the consonants because it was so holy that they couldn't even write it down. Not only that, when they got to the name of Yahweh, they put their pen down and they left. And they went 
and bathed themselves and purified themselves and spent so much time making sure that their hearts were right with the Lord, that they were confessing their sins, so that when they came back down and wrote the name Yahweh, that their hearts and lives were as pure as they could possibly be for them to put down the very name of God that carried the weight of everything that he was. His name was interchangeable with his character, with his works, with everything that he was. God is all that he does. So Moses was sent to the elders to tell them this message so they could go to the king and ask for three days in the wilderness where they could go and worship. Many of you may have uh, heard the story of a guy named Eric Liddell. And uh, if you've ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire, then you know a a little bit of his story. And Eric was a guy who was born uh, in China as the son of, of missionaries. And as he got old enough, his parents sent him from China to Scotland, his native land, so that he could grow up uh, and be educated there. And so Eric grew up, and one thing that people began to notice about him is that, yes, he was very bright, but at the same time, uh, he was very athletic. And so Eric began to excel specifically in the area of running. Over time, Eric became known kind of as a national hero in Scotland. Because he was literally the best runner that they had ever seen in their entire lives. Scotland had hopes of winning their first Olympic medal because of Eric. Eric's race was the 100 meter race. He trained for that. He'd spent so much of his life working towards this. But what's neat about Eric is that his relationship with the Lord was the most important thing to him. Nothing else came close in his life to making sure that God was honored above everything else. And so when the 1924 Olympics were approaching, Eric was 22 years old. And Eric found out that his race that he had trained much of his life for, the 100-meter race, was scheduled for a Sunday. Eric had great convictions in his life and believed that Sunday was the Lord's day, that it was set aside for worshiping the Lord, and nothing else. And so Eric went to the Olympic Committee and he said, I can't run it. His country was furious with him. He was their one hope to finally have a medal. What Eric did instead is he said, you know what, I'll run the 400 meter. If you know anything about running, training for the 100 meter run and the 400 meter run are completely different. All the training is different. You move from having to like, just sprint, basically, to be able to keep some endurance as you go along in the 400-meter run. And so Eric comes, and his country's disappointed. They don't think it's possible. He's a huge underdog in this race because his training hasn't prepared him for this. And they think that about halfway through this race, he's going to kind of back off, and everybody's going to pass him, and he's going to end up in last place. The day of the race comes. Eric begins running. He, He finishes the first 100 meters strong. He keeps going. And at the end of the race, he crosses the finish line first. It was an incredible moment. It was an incredible moment for his country. They gathered around him and everyone was so excited that not only did he win a gold medal, but he also set a world record for the 400-meter run. Would we remember Eric today 
if he had stepped in and run the 100-meter race, done his thing, won his medal, we don't know the names of anybody else who ran or participated in the 1924 Olympics. But we remember Eric because he was a man of conviction, because he put his relationship with God above anything else and said, God, even above what my greatest heart's desire is in this world, I am going to be obedient to you and serve you towards the end of his life. Eric, Eric quit right after the Olympics running, dedicated the rest of his life to being a missionary in China, eventually died in an internment camp in World War II. He wrote this in his journal, looking back at what God had been doing in his life, and he says, my whole life had been one of keeping out of public duties, but the leading of Christ seemed now to be in the opposite direction, and I shrank from going forward. At this time, I finally decided to put it all on Christ. After all, if he called me to do it, he would have to supply the necessary power. Eric knew that God had called him, and so he faithfully obeyed the Lord and dedicated his life to the glory of God. What does it mean for us to make our lives and God's calling on our lives about him? Isaiah 43, 6 and 7, God says, Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God created us not to live for ourselves, but to live for the glory of him. John Piper, a pastor in Minneapolis, says it this way. He says, God created me and you. To live with a single, all-embracing, all-transforming passion, namely a passion to glorify God by enjoying and displaying His supreme excellence in all the spheres of life. The wasted life is the life without a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. And Piper gets it right. Life and God's calling is not about us. It's for the supremacy of God, for the joy of others, that they can know the hope and the love that's found in him. Jesus prays in John 17, his high priestly prayer to his father. The first line is, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Jesus looking at death, realizing that it's coming up, but being obedient to the God who sent him so that we could have life and hope and salvation says, God, I will follow and obey you and I pray that through this, you are glorified. It's the call of our lives to glorify God. And everything that we do in obedience to him is for that very thing. How do we make God's calling about him? Three things. Number one, obey. It's simple. Just obey. If God's calling you to do something, have the courage and the faith to step out and obey. Number two, focus. Focus your life on him. If there's anything in your heart or in your life that's sidetracking you or distracting you, be willing to set that aside and say, you know what? I'm going to focus on the Lord. I'm going to spend more time in his word. I'm going to spend more time in prayer with him. So that as I focus more on him, my obedience to him becomes even more easier. It's easier for me to step out and say, God, I do this that you've called me to do for your glory. Number three. Don't make it about you. God's called you. Don't make it about you. Let's look a little bit more at that idea. Number three, first off, God's calling is about others. God's calling is about him. And lastly, God's calling is not 
about you. Let's look in Exodus chapter 4. The first ten, uh, nine verses of Exodus 4, I'm not going to read it, just kind of walk you through it. Moses comes to God and he says, God, they're not going to believe me or listen to me. Like, what do I do when that happens? And so God gives him basically three signs that he can take to the elders of Israel. And so what he does is he says, you can take your staff and throw it down. It'll turn into a snake. Pick it back up and it's a staff again. That's something you can do to convince them that you're from me. What's another thing that, that you can do? He says, stick your hand inside of your cloak, and when you take it out again, it's going to be leprous. It's going to be disease. Put it back in. When you pull it out again, it's whole. Number three, even if they don't believe all that, take some water from the Nile, pour, pour it on the ground, and it'll turn into blood. God says, after those things, they will listen to you. In verse 10, chapter 4, Moses goes on. Moses says to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O Lord, please send someone else. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him, put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do these signs. Moses comes to God with every excuse you can possibly imagine. Back at the beginning of, of chapter 3, he says, who am I to do this? Here in chapter 4, in the, in the first section, he's, he's like, God, why should they? They're not going to listen to me. They're not going to want to have anything to do with what I say. Here, in verse 10, he starts saying, God, I'm not a good speaker. I'm not eloquent. Like, I'm kind of like a slow speaker. They're not going to be excited to follow me. I just don't really have the gifts. I love what God says. God's like, Moses, who made your mouth? I know that about you. I know that you're not a great speaker. Guess what? I still want to use you. And I'm going to give you what you need to say. Next up, we see the heart of Moses in verse 13. Moses finally just comes out and he's like, all right, I've made every excuse. I don't know what else to say. Can you please just send somebody else? Just send somebody else so I don't have to do this. Scripture tells us that God's anger was kindled against Moses. And that he's angry that after making so many excuses, he wants to bow out of this. God may get angry with him, but it didn't change his call. It didn't change the fact that God still sent him. It didn't change the fact that God still used him. Though Aaron may have spoke the words to the people, that Moses gave Aaron the words to say. And God gave Moses the words to say to Aaron, to say to his people. When I was in middle school, um, kind of a big monumental thing happened to me. Um, when the first time that I went out and bought my first cassette, it was a cassette by the band DC Talk. 
If any of you grew up in the Christian bubble or subculture, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. It was a new thing. This was it. So, like, I would take this cassette. This is Christian rap. DC Talk stood for Decent Christian Talk, right? So it was real clean. My mom was happy, even though it was weird because it was rap. So I would take this cassette, and I'd go sit in my mom's car, like, in the driveway and, like, crank it up really loud so their speakers this big were, like, blaring and then eventually blew them out. Um, trying to be super cool. But like, I like really, for a little while, I was like, man, this is awesome. Like, the Lord wants me to be a rapper. So, there were about three months of my life where I'm like on this train to make this happen. And so I went and I grabbed my parents' like old keyboard and I started laying down some sick beats on it, right? And so I got this going on. I got a cassette player out. I put it in and I hit record and I just started laying out the rhymes on top of the beats. And like, it was incredible, or at least I thought so. So, like, I wrote a rap for my dad and recorded it for him for Father's Day. I wrote one for the girl who, like, sat next to me in class that I thought was super cute. Thankfully, I didn't give it to her. Um, But uh, I had my friends over one night, and uh, I was like, guys, this is my new jam. And so, like, I hit play on the cassette player. And my friends are sitting there just kind of like, I don't really know how to respond right now. This is an awkward situation. And at the end of it, one of them is just great and honest, but still loved me, said, dude, I just, I don't really feel like that's what the Lord's calling you to do. Like, there's got to be, like, something else for you. And uh, so sure enough, I picked up a guitar, and uh, over the next several years, um, God used music in my life to prepare me um, for what the Lord was doing. See, when I was in middle school, I was the kid who sat in the back of the room and never said a single word to anybody. I was as shy as you could possibly imagine. Speaking in front of people or even like speaking to people that I didn't know scared me to death. And so God began to take music and use it as a way to put me in front of people and prepare me for something greater later. And so I I was in a band for about eight years And the Lord was really using music in my life to prepare me, I believe, for standing up here today and getting to share from his word. And it all kind of came to a point one day where I was in college, still really shy, but in college, my freshman year, my youth pastor came up to me and he's like, listen, I believe that the Lord is calling you to teach our large group high school Sunday school on Sunday morning. 70 kids every week stand up in front of them and share from the word. Everything inside of me trembled at that thought. I was scared to death. But I knew that God was using this as a way to prepare me. And so fighting everything inside of me, I said, yes, I'll do it. God is faithful to prepare his people along the way. We've seen this happen in our church. Many of you have stepped into a missional community or or a huddle and and been afraid to lead or been been afraid to pray out loud or or do all these different things. And God has grown you and God has prepared you to where now some of you are leading huddles. Some of you are leading missional communities. God is saying, I'm faithful to be with you. I'm going to give you what you need to say to do the work that you need to do. But we tend to make things about us. We let our weaknesses get in the way. And God looks at us and he says, no, my calling is not about you, but it's for you. God calls us to something greater outside 
of who we are. Don't let excuses get in the way. We can make excuses all day, hoping that God is eventually going to give up on us and use somebody else. It's not what happens with Moses. God still uses him. Don't make God's call about you when God wants to make it about him and about others. God's call isn't for the best, the most gifted, and the most talented. It's for the obedient. God is just asking you to obey. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is having a conversation with several guys. In verse 57 it says, They were going along the road. Someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, Jesus says, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. These guys were coming up with every excuse they could think of, making God's, Jesus' call on them about them, not about him or others. To be obedient to God, we've got to be willing to put ourselves last. We've got to be willing to say, Lord, you are first. The good of others that they experience and hear the hope of you is so much more important than anything about me. God's call is about others and it's about him. But we've tried to make it about us. And it's just not. It's for us. It's not about me. It's not about I. It's about I am. How do we do it? How do we obey? How do we step forward and say, God, you're calling me. I want to go. Number one, remember God's promises to you. This is huge. We can't really step forward in obedience with faith without remembering the fact that God has first promised to be with us. And second, God has promised to give us the words to say, to take care of any weakness that we have, to see that his name is lifted high and that others are able to experience the hope of him. Number two, you've got to have faith. Do you trust that God is good? You believe that his will is best, that it's better than anything that you could ever hope or imagine for your own life. That what God hopes for you is even greater. If that's so, what's holding you back? Step forward, have the faith to obey. Number three, we have to obey. If you trust God, if you believe what he says is true, do it. Faith and obedience go together. We have to have faith to obey God. But we can never grow our faith unless we obey God. As we choose to step out in obedience to the Lord, he will continue to grow our faith. What's God calling you to do this morning? I don't know what it is for you. But likely you're sitting there this morning and you feel it. You know it. It's the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, telling you, nudging you, pushing you in this direction, saying, this is what I want for you. Whatever God's call is on your life this morning, I want to encourage you, have the faith, have the trust in God to obey. For some of you, it's to get plugged into a missional community or a huddle 
and allow God to begin to grow you to the point where maybe, for some of you, he's calling you to leave a missional community or a huddle. Step forward in more faith to be obedient to God. Some of you may say, I believe God has placed me in my workplace for a reason. I believe that God has placed me in my neighborhood for a reason. And I want to take serious the call to make disciples, to see that every man, woman, and child inside of my life has multiple opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel of Jesus. If that's God's call for you this morning, step out and do it. For some of you, maybe God's calling you to tithe. Maybe you haven't been giving to the Lord as he's called you to do. If you feel the Holy Spirit nudging you in that direction, obey him. He's going to take care of all of your needs, all of your weaknesses, if you step forward in obedience. For some of us, God's just calling us to trust him more, to have more faith in him. Take that first step of obedience so that he can grow your faith. Whatever you feel the Holy Spirit pushing you to this morning, I want to encourage you, don't hold back. Be all in. Obey and do whatever the Lord is asking you to do. And there's some of you here this morning, like we spoke of earlier. God's call to you this morning is a call to know him. You don't have a relationship with him, but yet you've seen in Scripture where, where God sees his people, hears his people, and knows his people. You're looking at your life and you're saying, my life's a mess. I don't know where there's hope. I don't know where there's rescue. But I want to promise you this morning that God sees your affliction and your struggles. He hears your cries and he knows your sufferings. And God's desire for you this morning is that you are rescued. He's calling you to himself this morning. God may have sent Moses to rescue his people from Egypt, but he sent his son Jesus to rescue you from your hopelessness. And this morning, I hope that you have the boldness to respond to Jesus who came in obedience to the Father, lived a perfect sinless life, died on a cross, bearing all of our sin, putting it to death, rising again to new life, and offering us the opportunity to live life eternal and abundant through him. In just a few minutes, the band's going to come up and we're going to sing. I'll be in the back as we finish our worship time. And if that's you, if the Lord is pushing you and calling you to himself this morning to know him for the first time, have a relationship with him for the first time through Jesus, I hope and pray that you'll have the boldness to step out, obey that call, and come to know the Lord. Whatever God is calling you to, don't hold back. Don't think about yourself. Think about the glory of God and others. Let's step in and obey. Let's pray. God, you are good to us. I'm thankful that we serve a God who sees us in our struggles. We serve a God who knows our sufferings and who hears us when we're crying. God, this morning we cry out to you. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't have a relationship with you, God, that in the midst of their hopelessness, God, that they would look to you and see who you are, see your character. God, see your glory. Feel the call that you have for their lives to know them. And God, they would step forward in obedience. Lord, for the rest of us, it's time that we stop making excuses. We can always come up with a billion excuses to live life for ourselves and do the things that we need to do for us. But the truth is, 
We're not here for us. Lord, we're here for you. And God, I pray that we can stop putting ourselves first. Lord, and start putting you in a position where you belong as Lord over us. God, give us the faith, give us the confidence this morning to respond to you in obedience. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.